glad and happy to be with you guys tonight. My name is Erin Lashley, and I currently serve as a pastor at a church called Kaleo Phoenix in downtown Phoenix, Arizona. And I've been doing that since January. And Delicia and Justin have been friends of mine for a long time. They're good people, as you know, or otherwise you probably wouldn't show up here. Um, but they're really great, and so I'm really excited to be able to, and honored, I would say, to be able to share with you tonight things that I've learned um, around the emotion of shame. Um, more specifically, sexual shame. So we'll see how that goes. Not a heavy topic at all. Um, but yes, okay, so um, why not just jump right in? So um, I'm going to be reading out of John 8, 1 through 11, the New Living Translation. I think it's up on the screen for you, but I'll read it to you and then we'll pray. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, but what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Would you bow your heads once more with me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a heavy topic for our culture and the time that we're in, whether we're single, whether we're dating, or whether we're married. It's oftentimes hard to navigate something we don't quite understand or don't really feel like it's super clear in the Bible what you even say or think about some of these things, God, but we just ask you for grace, and we ask you for wisdom, and we ask you for the ability to hear what you would have to say to us. I would invite you with me to just be silent for a moment and see what Jesus would have to say to you tonight. Shame, that deep-rooted anxiety that makes you feel like it's your fault and you're the problem. Shame, that feeling that makes you at times want to throw up or keeps you awake at night. Shame, it haunts you every time you hear that voice smell that scent or see that piece of clothing, those reminders that you can't control, and they send you back into such a depressive state at times. Shame. It's so deeply connected to who you are as a person. And sometimes it's hard to separate yourself from the emotion. Shame says you're the problem, and if you're the problem, then what in the world are you going to do about that? 
How do you remove yourself from feeling shame when you're the one who feels ashamed? I know. Distractions, right? Anything to get your mind off shame. Anything to distract you from feeling like it's me, I'm the problem. Maybe it's starting a business. Or maybe like me, you started a podcast. Maybe it's partying, maybe it's starting a new job or getting new friends or going to a new church or getting new clothes, watching television, movies, just trying to drown out the emotion with entertainment. Anything, anything, anything to distract you from feeling shame. But when the distraction is gone, the shame resurfaces. And it's interesting to me that shame is so deeply connected to our identity and how we view ourselves. A little bit about my story. I grew up in a Christian home, and my grandmother was a pastor, and my grandee, there is a difference, a granny and grandma. Uh, I've been trying to tell Kendall, my boyfriend, that he's struggling right now with that, but, um, but my granny, my grandmother was a pastor, and my granny, she served as an usher in, a, in the same church for 40 years, so Christ and Christianity runs deep in my family, historically. My parents always brought us to church and did their best to teach us to love God and to love people. We went to a non-denominational church in Illinois, and from middle school to high school, there was this movement called the Purity and Abstinence Movement. Late 90s, early 2000s, if you're old enough, maybe you remember, maybe you've never heard of it before. But this movement had products like purity rings and abstinence contracts that you would sign, vowing to remain what was called pure until marriage. Some of you guys are like, what the what? That's what I felt like. In 1997, a gentleman by the name of Joshua Harris wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye about what it means to entrust your love, your love life to God. Now my church, like many other evangelical churches at the time, took this curriculum and fed it to their students like bread and water. I wouldn't necessarily write that book title down because what's interesting today is that the author of the book, Joshua Harris, presently recants what he wrote in that book, which is so interesting to reflect on, and is currently in a season of deconstructing his faith and trying to figure out what does he really believe about that topic. But in this book, Joshua shares his story of giving up dating and discovering that God has something even better, a life of sincere love, true purity, and purposeful singleness. Huh. I want you to let that sink in for just a minute. Doesn't that sound like super safe, right? My youth group gravitated towards this teaching, and it became the Bible study that we centered around, the videos we watched, and the topics that we were taught. And these ideas, truly, if I'm honest with you, taught me things subconsciously that I didn't realize even until recently. And some of those things are, it taught me to be ashamed of my body and ashamed of my sexual desires. Because how can you be pure and still have sexual desire? It taught me to think negatively about sex because purity and virginity was the goal. It taught me that my identity and my worth and the identity and worth of those around me was tied to virginity. That women were responsible for men's actions and how modestly or unmodestly I dressed was shameful. 
It subconsciously taught me, these teachings subconsciously taught me that modesty messages shamed women and it let men off the hook. It taught me that I was out of, it was, that I was an out of control sexual being that was incapable of doing good and therefore I couldn't trust myself or my desires. At the time I couldn't name for you why purity culture was harmful or why it was unbeneficial for me. But I do believe for many years the deep-rooted shame that I carried about my sexuality kept me from entering to a healthy relationship for many years. I would move from this subconscious to a conscious like self-sabotage because I couldn't quite figure out how to be in a healthy dating relationship and still be pure. I was always at war with myself. My desires and the growth of my sexuality would lead me to say that I wasn't ready or that it wasn't for me or that I wanted to focus on myself. And maybe I'll just continue to be single because it was too much for me to handle. The feeling of shame was too much for me. I needed to get my life together. Again, all of these things were more like distractions for me. But this longing for love and relationship and to be with someone was at war with the purity that I felt like I had to uphold. So what was I to do? And at the time, I, I couldn't figure out in my mind, how could I have both at the same time? So I lived in this constant fear that my desires physically were bad and out of control. And if I was at the wrong place at the wrong time, I would have sex outside of marriage, which was bad and shameful based upon this teaching in the purity and abstinence movement. I couldn't bear it. This fear, this mindset, this way of thinking shaped my life for a long time. And my struggles with fantasy and masturbation had me locked in a jail cell called condemnation. Nobody could get out and nobody could get in because nobody understood what I was really going through. And I believed it was safer to stay inside this jail cell called condemnation than it was to be free and to be liberated. Maybe a year and a half ago, I was having one of those low moments where I was feeling a bit defeated sexually. I felt the heavy weight of sexual shame. And my sister has always thought therapy and taking care of your mental health was a good thing. And it was a concept that she picked up from her church like eight and a half years ago. Um, before it was really popular today in church culture. At the time, this thought process was progressive um, to be talking about mental health at church, but the church that I came from, without, and I say this respectfully because I don't think that they did this intentionally, but the church that I came from almost made me believe that you were crazy if you kind of needed to go to a mental therapist. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. Probably because our pastor had this testimony and one of his stories was that he was in a mental hospital and he was in a mental institution. His testimony was always that the Bible and meditation of the word of God is what delivered him out of his unhealthy mental state, which I didn't realize until I literally started to write this talk but that teaching formed in me this belief that if I needed mental health, it was because my relationship with God wasn't strong enough. That if I needed mental health, it was because I wasn't a deep enough Christian or I didn't know enough Bible verses. So when my sister was talking about therapy and counseling, I was like, okay, you're crazy. But hey, that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. Whatever floats your boat. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to pass on that one. But you do it. You do you, right? And then years later, Delicia, who you guys all know, told me a similar thing. 
she kind of felt like, you know, I don't know if I can help you with what you're dealing with, Aaron, because I don't have that same story as you, and I feel like therapy might really help you. And my response was honestly like hurt and offense because I was like, no, nah. <laughs> like I'm not doing that. And I couldn't verbalize it at the time, but her encouragement for me to seek therapy and counseling was telling me that I wasn't a good Christian. At least that's what I was hearing. And my relationship with God wasn't strong enough and I needed help. It took me a few months to come to grips with that and without telling a soul, I eventually started looking for a therapist off and on. I tried one counselor, that didn't work. I didn't really like her. I tried a chat-only therapy, maybe you've seen that, and it wasn't really my thing. Then I tried my friend's therapist, I reached out to her and she was fully booked. I Googled therapists and I wasn't really finding what I was looking for. I was looking for somebody that really understood my lived experiences. And so for a while I took a break from searching and the summer of 2020 hit me like a ton of bricks. Quarantine, racial unrest, Isolation, lack of church community, lack of being able to gather together with friends and share life was all wrapped up into one like a gift I didn't know. I didn't want to open what was kind of forced to. And that's when I picked up the search again and was determined to get help. I felt like I was going crazy and I couldn't deal with the racial trauma, the sexual trauma. And trying to navigate a new guy I started talking to and kind of liking when I dating Kendall He's here tonight if you want to talk to him later. But finally, after many months of searching for the right fit, in July of 2020, I had my first therapy session with Dr. Shante, who specializes in EMDR, and it changed my life. And she put a little video together for you guys tonight if you just want to take a look. I'm Dr. Shantae. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you briefly on shame and EMDR therapy. Shame. I wanted to find that as an emotion that informs us that we've made a mistake, but it's bigger than that. We learn from these experiences, from the shame that we feel that we're actually fundamentally flawed. Guilt and shame are very similar. I think that people use those feelings interchangeably. Guilt is an emotion that lets us know when we've done something wrong. Shame is bigger though, like I'm bad instead of the behavior or the action or the thing that I did was bad. And shame shows up in our lives in different ways. Sometimes we get so deep into our shame, we get stuck in it and we can't move forward. And shame keeps us in these unhelpful behaviors. So sometimes those unhelpful behaviors are like the too muches, like substance abuse, um, bad relationships, uh, shopping, playing video games too much. We actually continue to do these behaviors because we think it's going to help relieve some of the shame, but then we also create more shame around doing these behaviors. So it actually perpetuates the problem. So EMDR therapy is the type of therapy that I specialize in. It's a trauma therapy. So EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And I define trauma as a trauma therapist as a threat that you weren't prepared to handle. So we would look at all of the threats that you weren't prepared to handle and correlate that to where you learned about shame and how you learned to experience shame and things that made you feel shame. And we would heal all of the disturbance around those different experiences. So that way you don't continue to live in the shame and you no longer believe that you're fundamentally flawed or you're not good enough or your needs don't matter. You actually create a positive, more adaptive cognition or belief about yourself 
and you move forward in a way that doesn't continue to perpetuate the shame. You unlearn what isn't needed and you learn more helpful ways of being. And you can choose how you want to think, act, and respond to things instead of just reacting in shame and in these like unhelpful behaviors. That was my brief definition of shame, trauma, and EMDR therapy. I'm happy to answer any questions you have around this because I know it was only just a couple of minutes. Feel free to contact me. Thank you so much for this opportunity to speak to you about shame, EMDR therapy, and how it can be helpful. Um, man, therapy has just been such a, a healthy thing for me and a helpful thing. And some of the things that I've learned in therapy, I want to share with those, those things with you tonight. Um, but before I get into that, I've been reading this book called Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Swoboda. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is when Adam and Eve were given the um, job of naming the animals, that job indicated that they had authority over the things that they were naming. And so when you name something, you say something out loud, you then have authority over the things that you name. And that's something that I've been practicing or anyone would practice when you go to therapy because you begin to say out loud maybe traumatic things that you've experienced and you begin to reclaim authority over that thing instead of that thing having authority over you. And that's one super practical way that you can break shame in your life. Therapy has given me the freedom that I've needed in naming things. And therapy doesn't just work because you go, it works because you work it. I've had to do a lot of difficult things that I maybe wasn't necessarily comfortable with, but anything that she would recommend, a book that I would read or something that I should journal or have a difficult conversation with my boyfriend or friend or family member or do all of these different things or make time for myself and work out more, things like that. I've had to do them because therapy doesn't just work because you go and sit down in front of somebody. It works because you work it. And I realized that the ways in which I was formed, the experiences that I've had and lived through have like clay formed me to believe and to behave in certain ways. And those, experience formed, those experiences formed me to believe that I couldn't trust myself. That if I started kissing my boyfriend, then I was gonna have sex outside of marriage and I can't deal with the shame, so no, absolutely not, right? Shame is rooted in fear. Fear that I'm not loved or accepted because of who I am and what I've done. But I forgot that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control and that I can trust myself because I trust the one who I'm submitted to. And that's something that we forget oftentimes. Is that I'm submitted to the Holy One and I've given my life to the rhythms and the ways of Jesus. So the first thing that I've learned from therapy is that I can trust myself. That I can indeed trust myself because I'm a new person and the Holy Spirit lives in me. That I can trust that as I date Kendall, that we'll be able to adhere and uphold the values that we've agreed upon as a dating couple. In therapy once, Dr. Shantae asked me, so Aaron, tell me, like you're all freaked out about having sex before marriage, getting pregnant out of wedlock, and all the shame around this idea. What is seriously the worst that can happen? And I was like, everything you just said. <laughs> like, I don't understand, right? Like, if I get pregnant out of wedlock, I literally just became a pastor. I would have to, like, resign. Like, you see, like, what I'm saying? You know, like, all of these things. And as she, I began to say these things out loud to her, and she began to help me, once again, name the things that I was feeling shame around, I realized, yeah, all of those things could happen. Of course, it's not the goal. But even if they did happen, she told me, why wouldn't God use that as part of your testimony and your story? 
Why is it that you see that as that's the end? That a mistake is the end for you? But God redeems stories, and that then becomes a testimony that other people can relate to that have had those similar experiences. And that was life-giving for me, encouraging for me. So now, I also want to just clarify that I can trust myself is not a one-size-fits-all statement. It requires that each of us have a deep understanding of who we are, our lived experiences, the ways in which we were formed and what healthy relationship looks like based on that. And from there, in communication with your partner, whether you're married, dating, or even if you're single, in relationship with family and friends and community, you have to decide what you value and how you will live that out before each other and before God. Kendall told me the other day that um, he doesn't really carry guilt and shame. And I was like, how is this possible? I don't understand these people that just don't have guilt and shame. I don't, I don't understand that. And as he was talking about it, he then said, I just really believe in God's grace. I really believe that God has grace for me and anything that I may encounter along the way as I seek to be a great witness for Jesus Christ. And that sunk in for me. And it leads me to point two, which is what I've learned in therapy and just dating Kendall too, is that there's grace for the gray. There's grace for not having the answer. There's grace for not having it all figured out. And there's grace for being in process. And number three, the best gift, the third thing I learned in therapy is that the best gift that I can give to someone else is a healthy version of me. The best gift that I can give to Kendall while dating him is a healthy version of me. The best gift that I can give to my friend is a healthier version of me. The best gift that I can give to my church community is a healthy version of me. When we are unhealthy and we are operating from a place of fear, shame, and insecurity, we are teaching our family, friends, coworkers, community how to cope with our toxicity. And we're discipling people into our toxicity. And like a potter that forms clay, we are forming people based on the things that have wounded us. So think about it. When someone learns how to cope with someone else's anger, passive aggression, envy, fear, it forms something not only in you, but also in them. How healthy we are or aren't affects the people around us. It might show up in attachment wounds or identity issues or value worth issues or confidence issues, trust issues, communication issues. The thing that builds what MLK calls beloved community is healthy individuals that give love and share health with those around them. I want to go back to the passage that we talked about in John 8, 1 through 11. Even as you look at that passage, it's almost as if Jesus conducts a therapy session for the lady who was caught in adultery. What does Jesus do? He helps the woman who was caught in adultery name her struggle. Name that she actually has an accuser. Name her shame and her condemnation. But then Jesus liberates her. He says, where are your accusers? Then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus frees her from shame, guilt, and condemnation, and then says, with this new identity I've given you. 
an identity of love, go and live in your new liberated state. And that's what I believe Jesus wants to do with you tonight. I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. Maybe take a deep breath if you need to. I know shame is such a heavy topic. Lord Jesus, as we sit and we just reflect on your love for us. Maybe there's people here tonight that just feel so much shame and condemnation from voices of other people that they've adopted into their own voice and their own head. Maybe there's other people here tonight, Lord, that just don't know what the healthy way forward is in their relationship. Jesus doesn't condemn you. Jesus removes the fear that is the root of shame that's placed upon you. And as we sit here together, just invite Jesus to love on you and to remove the shame that you may feel. Imagine Jesus saying to you, I don't condemn you either. Where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. There's an invitation here that I believe Jesus is extending to all of us. And that invitation is to be free from shame and the guilt placed upon us by others. To find healing and liberation in the holistic view of his creation even if that's going to therapy and counseling, even if that's journaling or talking to someone or sending an email or writing a letter or sending a text. Lord Jesus, we accept this invitation. And we say that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.